0: All right, well, good morning, everybody. Glad you could join us today. My name is Thomas. I'm on the staff at our church. If you're new, look forward to seeing you at our welcoming lunch. Again, if you do not know where to go for that, just go to our welcoming table. We have people who can point you to the right direction. And again, if you didn't sign up, it's all good. We just want to feed you. We want to get to know you. And we want you to get to know our church. And so look forward to that. If this is your first time here, uh, just know to catch up to speed. This past season, we've been going through... Um, different sermon series, uh, a lot of it had to do with very practical ways how to follow Jesus as a church. We went through the practices of Jesus and went through that. And that was really helpful, I think, for our community. This past series we went through um, how to read, reading scripture. Cause we want to be a church that's known as people come here, that the people here, uh, they read the scriptures, they understand the story of God. And a lot of those were very topical and that was done intentionally. And uh, it's a breath of fresh air now that we're going to actually... Uh, go and land in a book in the Bible and journey through that together. And uh, we're going to be journeying actually in this, uh, the next few weeks through a new sermon series in the gospel. Well, not the gospel. Well, the sermon series is called the gospel according to Genesis. Uh, the book of Genesis, the very first book in the Bible. Um, a lot of you might be familiar with it. If you've been part of our church for a while, you'll know that we actually went through the book of Genesis uh, a few years ago. Um, where we did, because you could, we did different parts of it. And I always had an intention that we're going to come back to Genesis and we're going to finish off this story. Because the book of Genesis, uh, you could actually divide this book into three different parts. Uh, Part one, you could say is uh, Genesis 1 to 11. And it's all about the story of creation where we hear like Adam and Eve and the story of Cain and Abel. Noah and the flood. Tower of Babel. The fall. And that's all kind of setting up this big picture of what Genesis says about humanity and the big questions of life. But then part two, you could almost say is Genesis 12-36, this is the story of the patriarchs, uh, the story of Abraham, the story of Sarah, Isaac, Jacob, and Esau. Um, that's kind of the middle part, and we went through that during COVID. I'm not sure how many of you remember that, but that was our series that we went through during that time. Uh, but the last part of Genesis, uh, chapters 37-50, to 50, this is what's known as the story of Joseph. Um, and if you heard of this story, I'm sure you're, you still remember a lot of parts of it. Like some of you, when you think of the story of Joseph, you're like, oh, yeah, that Sunday school story, the colored dream coat. There's a play about that that I remember watching. Or, you know, if he had dreams that I remember that part. Or he went to Egypt and so forth. And a lot of us were familiar with the story. Uh, but I'm not sure how many of us really understand the purpose of the story. Like what's going on here. And the reason why I feel that way is because, like, why is the story of Joseph, why is it in Genesis? I feel like a lot of us, when we read the story of Joseph, or we hear about it, or it's taught about, it's told in very much isolation. So it's kind of like a moral tale. Um, But the the story of Joseph, it's in Genesis for a reason. Or why is it that the story of Joseph, it is the longest story in the book of Genesis? Longer than the story of Adam and Eve, longer than the story of Isaac and Jacob, even longer than the story of Abraham. The story of Joseph takes the most airtime in the book of Genesis. And not only that, but why is the story of Joseph the last story in the book of Genesis? If the book of Genesis was a TV series, the story of Joseph would be the last season. If it was a Star Wars movie, it would be episode three. If it was part of the MCU, the, book of, the story of Joseph would be Endgame. It is the grand finale of this epic tale that's being told in Joseph. Why? And I think those questions and our inability to answer that tells us that there's actually a lot more going on in the Joseph story than maybe a lot of us realize. And so for us to journey through this, we want to look at the very beginning of how it starts. And so we're going to start in Genesis 37. It's a lot more text than maybe we've normally done the past few weeks, but we do want to do a deep dive into this. It's not the entire chapter 37, but we're going to be hitting upon most of it. And if you're new at our church, one thing our church does is when we open the scriptures, we believe God is alive and he is speaking. And uh, in, in light of that, can we all rise together as we read the scriptures starting in Genesis 37... Verse 1 to 13, and then verses 23 to verse 34. So Genesis starts in verse 1. Now Jacob lived in the land where his father had stayed, the land of Canaan. These are the family records of Jacob. At 17 years of age, Joseph tended sheep with his brothers. The young man was working with the sons of Bilhah and Zilpah, his father's wives, and he had brought a bad report about them to their father. Now Israel loved Joseph more than his other sons, Because Joseph was a son born to him in his old age, and he made a long-sleeved robe for him. When his brothers saw that their father loved him more than all his brothers, they hated him and could not bring themselves to speak peacefully to him. Then Joseph had a dream. When he told it to his brothers, they hated him even more. He said to them, listen to this dream I had. There we were, binding sheaves of grain in the field. Suddenly my sheaf stood up, and your sheaves gathered around it and bowed down to my sheaf. Are you really going to reign over us, his brothers asked him. Are you really going to rule us? So they hated him even more because of his dream and what he had said. Then he had another dream and told it to his brothers. Look, he said, I had another dream. And this time the sun, moon, and 11 stars were bowing down to me. He told his father and brothers, and his father rebuked him. What kind of dream is this that you have had, he said. Am I and your mother and your brothers really going to come down and bow down to the ground before you? His brothers were jealous of him, but his father kept this matter in in mind. His brothers had gone to pasture their father's flocks at Shechem. And Israel said to Joseph, your brothers, you know, are pasturing the flocks at Shechem. Get ready. I'm sending you to them. I'm ready, Joseph replied. Verse 23. When Joseph came to his brothers, they stripped off Joseph's robe, the long-sleeved robe that he had on. Then they took him and threw him into the pit. The pit was empty without water. They sat down to eat a meal. And when they looked up, there was a caravan of Ishmaelites coming from Gilead. Their camels were carrying aromatic gum, Bassam, and resin going down to Egypt. Judah said to his brothers, what do we gain if we kill our brother and cover up his blood? Come on, let's sell him to the Ishmaelites and not lay a hand on him. For he is our brother, our own flesh. And his brothers agreed. When the midnight traders passed by, his brothers pulled Joseph out of the pit and sold him for 20 pieces of silver to the Ishmaelites, who took Joseph to Egypt. When Reuben returned to the pit and saw that Joseph was not there, he tore his clothes. He went back to his brothers and said, The boy is gone. What am I going to do? So they took Joseph's robe, slaughtered the male goat, and dipped the robe in its blood. They sent the long-sleeved robe to their father and said, We found this. Examine it. Is it your son's robe or not? His father recognized it. It is my son's robe, he said. A vicious animal has devoured him. Joseph has been torn to pieces. And then Jacob tore his clothes, put sackcloth around his waist, and mourned his son many days. This is the reading of God's word. Can I pray for us before we begin? Lord, would your spirit move? Would your word speak? And may our hearts be ready to hear and to listen to your voice. Be with us, O Lord, today. And I pray this all in your son's name. Amen. You may be seated. I was telling another group, I think if we had to do uh, a trivia with our church and say how many countries in Africa can you name, probably not many, maybe Uganda, that's it. <laughs> like how many more can you name in Africa because uh, we're not really familiar with that continent. But there is one country that I'm not sure if you're familiar with, it's called Mozambique. It has about 32 million people in that country. And it's, it's kind of known as it's a country that was filled with a lot of war. In the 1970s, they actually got involved in the Civil War and they're fighting with one another. And as a result of that Civil War, millions of guns just got poured into that country. So many people died as a result of this war. And this war lasted over 20 years. Uh, 1995 was when the Civil War officially ended. And the country was left in a state where the people, the natives, they had to figure out how do we rebuild this nation? What kind of nation should we be in light of all the suffering and pain that we went through? And what's fascinating was there's a group of Christian artists in Mozambique where they wanted to create art that would tell their country's story, but also kind of paint a vision of the type of nation they want to become. And the most famous art piece that they made was in 2005. It's in the British Museum to this day. It's called the Tree of Life, and this is a picture of it. So the Tree of Life—that's a biblical term. It's uh, it's a it's a term and a, a symbol that appears. Uh, in the book, two times in the Bible, it appears in the book of Genesis, and it appears in the book of Revelation. So in the very beginning of the Bible, and the very end of the Bible. And at the very end of Revelation, the tree of life, again, it's, it's ambiguous, People, scholars talk about like what exactly it is, and, and so forth. But they all agree that the tree of life, it is meant to be a symbol of hope, because it's described as its leaves will heal the nations. That's what Revelation says. It's a symbol of hope for all the nations, in other words, to be healed by the hand of God. And what makes this art piece, they call it the Tree of Life, what makes it so memorable is not just the fact that this is an artwork of the Tree of Life, but what it's made out of. It's made of machine guns. All the guns that were used to fight in the Civil War, they grabbed scraps of it and they put it together and they made the Tree of Life this artwork. And the reason why they did that, was because the artists did that, was because in the, Mo- the natives of Mozambique, they had a vision Where one day God's going to come and he's not just going to remove the evil and suffering of the world, but he will turn that into something beautiful. Where there's still, we remember the pain, the suffering that this nation endured, but God's going to redeem it and use it into something that's new. Into something that we could admire. And that's what makes this work stand out. And the reason why I bring that up is because that's actually what the book of Genesis is all about. If you've never read the book of Genesis, just know the book of Genesis, it's a story of how God, he is coming to redeem this broken world. And he's planning to turn it into something beautiful. Genesis chapter 1 to 11, we can almost describe that as this story. That tells us there's a problem with this world. God created, the, the the authors of Genesis argue that there's a God who created this world to be good. But as human beings, we messed it up. We bring sin. We rebel against God. We hurt one another, and we just messed up God's creation. But Gen- Genesis twelve thirty six, what it tells us is God gives a promise. He has not given up on this world, but He promises to restore it, to redeem it, and He's going to start one family at a time, starting with the family of Abraham. And that's why the whole part two is all about the story of Abraham. But then Genesis thirty seven to fifty, the last part, it's the picture. What does it look like for God to fulfill this promise? What does it actually look like for God to redeem the world? All of Genesis is just promises, promises, promises. But in the story of Joseph, what we actually get is a picture of what God's redemption actually looks like. This is why Genesis, or Joseph is in Genesis. It's trying to paint this big picture of what Genesis is talking about. This is why Joseph is the longest story in Genesis. It's telling us this detailed story, this elaborate story of God's redemption. And this is why it's at the end. Let's see, this is what God's going to do. This is what this God who promises all these things, this is what it looks like when he comes into Joseph's life. Now, that's all awesome. That's super cool. That's nice Bible knowledge. Why should we care? Why should you care about this? And I think the reason why is because Genesis, the opening line, talks about a problem that we all have. The opening line of Genesis tells us that the world was without form, it was void. It was darkness. In other words, the world was—it was just kind of chaotic until God came in. And I think for a lot of us, that's how our lives feel. There are things happening in your life that feels like chaos. Like you don't know how to make sense of all the troubles, the problems, the burdens that are there. A lot of our relationships feels chaotic, where it's dysfunctional. It's not the way it's supposed to be. We feel like we experience losses and setbacks in life that feel overwhelming and heavy. Or some of us, we experience past trauma and pain that still haunts us to this day. And what Genesis tells us is it affirms that this is the common human problem. That's life. We live in a broken world, and all of that is something that's very common to the human experience. But Genesis also proposes but there's a God behind all of this. In the midst of this chaos, there's a God who is working in everything that we see. Now, that begs a big question, though. If there is a God behind all the chaos in my life, what is he doing? Why why, why is he just watching this unfold? Why does God allow my life to go off the rails? And if you want to understand how God works in your life, it's helpful to first see how did God work in the life of Joseph. Because Joseph, he answers the Genesis problem, showing a picture of how God works in the midst of chaos, in the midst of sin, in the midst of brokenness, And we're going to be journeying throughout for the next few weeks. But today, we're going to see three things in chapter 37. Three things that we're going to notice. First, we're going to see the deep problem of sin. The deep problem of sin that we're going to talk about in the story of Joseph. Second, we want to see the hidden purpose of God. But there's a hidden purpose going on in all of this. And lastly, we want to see the unique pattern of grace. So the deep problem of sin, the hidden purpose of God, the unique pattern of grace. First, the deep problem of sin. Genesis 37 to 50, the next few weeks when we go through it. It is called The Story of Joseph, but it's actually about three different characters, because three different characters take a lot of prominence in these next chapters. And the three characters are Jacob, Joseph, and his brothers. And, and, the, and this chapter 37, it kind of introduces them all to us. Have <laughs> you ever watched that movie, The Suicide Squad, DC? You meet all these characters, and they're really random, and they're all the reason why they're introducing all these different characters in that movie is they're showing, hey, this guys, they're superpowers. They're all doing the same mission, but they all have weird quirks, like they all have issues. Like one person's kind of psycho, another person's like really angry, another person has like major mommy issues, and they want to like highlight that just so you know what you're getting yourself into in the story. And Genesis thirty-seven is kind of doing the same thing. All these members, the brothers, Joseph, Jacob, they are all part of God's redemption plan but they all have deep issues, all of them. Let's look at them one at a time. First, the first person we meet in the story is Jacob. Jacob is the first character. Uh, if you're fam- again, the story of Jacob, it, it covers a bunch of different chapters in 20, chapter 25 36, but uh, he's the first character we meet in verses 1 to 2. It says, Jacob lived in the land of his father's sojournings in the land of Canaan. Now, a little backstory if you don't know who Jacob is. Jacob, he grew up his entire life Lacking the affirmation of his father. His father, Isaac, had two sons, Jacob and Esau. And while Jacob's mother loved him, Isaac loved his twin brother, Esau. And so Jacob, his whole life grew up lacking a fatherly love, led him to meet this woman named Rachel, who he just adored. He loved Rachel. In fact, Jacob, he ends up getting four wives. Technically, two of them are concubines, but four. But the one who is his beloved, the one that he favors the most, is Rachel. Now, Rachel, she gives birth to two of uh, Jacob's sons, Joseph and Benjamin. And Rachel dies shortly after giving birth to Benjamin. And even though Jacob has 11 other sons, Joseph is now Jacob's new beloved. Look at verse 3, what it says. Now, Israel, which is another name for Jacob, he loved Joseph more than any of his sons, because he was a son of his old age, and he made a long-sleeve robe for him. Singles cannot imagine how could a parent love one child more than his other children. But us parents, we know. We understand. Just I have three kids. On my wallpaper, it's one child. One child. That's what us parents do. Do you have favorites? It changes depending on the day, depending on the week, depending on how feel on the season, depending on their age. But you have favorites. And we show it in different ways and the way we talk about them and, you know, profile pictures or social media pictures. Back then, they didn't have social media. But Jacob, the way he did it was he gave Joseph a coat. This is my son. Side nerd note, uh, you'll notice in the text it doesn't say color coat. It says long sleeve coat because that Hebrew word for color or long sleeve, nobody knows what it means. So it may not have been a color coat. All these plays would be out of business. If they knew this. But the, the main point of the coat isn't the fact that it's colored, but it is meant to set Joseph apart. He is someone who is different amongst my, 11, amongst my 12 sons. He, in fact, is most likely going to be the inheritor, the person who inherits all that Jacob owns, the inheritor, of the promise. That's almost what's being indicated here. In other words, Joseph became Jacob's idol. Joseph is Jacob's new source of love and affirmation, the type of love that he wanted from his father that he never got, the type of love he briefly found in Rachel. It is now located in Joseph, his son, and it's destroying his whole family. His whole family is getting messed up because of the way Jacob is loving and favoring Joseph. Deep issues. Here's the second character, Joseph. We meet Joseph next. Now, if you're familiar with the story of Joseph, most people I know say, man, Joseph... That's a good guy. He, he's rock solid of all the biblical characters. That's why so many parents name their Christian kids Joseph, right? Because Joseph, he's amazing. Just know, yeah, maybe he's pretty cool later. Not here, not in chapter 37. Let's read it carefully who Joseph is. Look at verse 2. Now, Joseph, being 17 years old, first sign of trouble, he's a teenager. Joseph is 17. He was pasturing the flock with his brothers. He was a boy with the sons of Billa and Zoppa, his father's wives. And Joseph brought a bad report of them to their father. So let's pause there. Billa and Zippa are, are Jacob's uh, concubines. And Joseph, he's relating to their kids. And so they're half-brothers. They're not, fo- they're not like 100%. So there's like a little bit of a barrier that's going on there. And we're told that Joseph, he brought a bad report about his half-brothers to his father. In other words, you know what, you know what Joseph is? He's a snitch. He's a tattletale. That's his reputation with them. And not only that, so awkward relationship with his half brothers, but then look what he does. That does not stop him from sharing these random dreams he has. Look at verse six to seven. Joseph said to them, Hear this dream that I've dreamed. Behold, we were binding sheaves in the field, and behold, my sheaf arose and stood upright, and behold, your sheaves gathered around it and bowed down to my sheaf. Joseph's like, This is the weirdest thing. This is a sheaf, by the way. Like these bales of, like, like you know, hay. And he's like, you know, we were all carrying this. And mine went up, and you all bowed to me. Wasn't that amazing? That's a crazy dream I had. Like, what in the world? And then verse 9, look what it says. In verse 9, then Joseph, he dreamed another dream. And he told it to his brothers and said, behold, I dreamed another dream. Behold, the sun, the moon, and 11 stars, they were all bowing down to me too. Like, Joseph, oh, my gosh, all the stars bowed down to me? And, like, you know, if you know, Joseph, like, if he had that dream, that's one thing, but why on earth would you tell your brothers who you have a weird relationship with about these dreams? Like, why would you do that? What was happening here? You know what was happening? Joseph was on the path of becoming what people today would call a narcissist. He was a narcissist. He had this excessive admiration for himself. And who knows, maybe he was, maybe he was awesome. But the love and care that Jacob was showing Joseph, it was getting to him. You ever meet those child celebrities where they grew up their whole life where they're amazing, they're awesome, you're amazing, millions of Instagram followers? They get messed up. Something happens to them. There's a a narcissistic tendency that comes up. And the same thing was happening with Joseph. He was on the path of self-absorption and you see a glimpse of it as he's talking to his brothers about his dreams. And that leads to the last character, the brothers. We meet these eleven brothers, and we are told just two things about them in chapter 37. Number one, they're Joseph's brothers. Number two, they hated Joseph. In fact, they repeated three times how much they hated Joseph. Verse four: when his brothers saw that their father loved them more than all his brothers, they hated him and could not speak peacefully to him. Verse five, now Joseph had a dream, and when he told it to his brothers, they hated him even more. Verse eight. So they hated him even more for his dreams and for his words. The main thing Genesis wants you to know is these brothers, they hated Joseph, and this hatred was growing within them. It was growing, it was growing, it was growing. And Genesis its trying to show this about every character, not to show them these are the different quirks these guys all have, or this is their personality type, or so this is their Enneagram number. That's not what Genesis is trying to do. Genesis is trying to show us the effects of sin infesting this family. Sin has infected this family, too. You ever watch the TV show, The Walking Dead? It used to be good. Back when it was good in season one, people were curious. I have mentioned a story before, but the premise is interesting where you know, the traditional zombie show is if you get bit, you become a zombie. But there's a famous episode, at the, last season, the last episode of season one, where the scientist, he whispers to the main character why people get sick, why to become zombies. He goes, we're all infected. We all have the zombie gene. As soon as you die, you just become a zombie. It doesn't matter if a zombie bites you, we're all infected. And Genesis is saying the same thing when you read the story. What it's trying to say as you read it and you see the way their personalities are coming out, it's saying the fall has entered into the world and they're all infected. That's why so many of their issues, if you read Genesis, it's so familiar. Like Jacob, he's favoring one person all the time. His son Joseph, Hmm, that sounds familiar. That sounds like his dad, Isaac. He's echoing Isaac. Oh, Joseph, he's being prideful, thinking he's like high above everything else. Wow, that sounds like Adam in the the garden. Or it sounds like a Tower of Babel. Or these brothers, they want to kill their brother because they're jealous of him. That sounds like another story of a brother who wanted to kill his brother. Oh, that's Cain and Abel. Why is Genesis doing this? It's trying to show us. They're all infected with the exact same thing you saw throughout Genesis. And so... The first thing we learn from the story of Genesis and the story of Joseph is that all of us, too, we are like these characters. We all have a d- deep sin problem. We're all infected. Whenever I, I, I counsel a married couple and they're fighting and they don't know why they're fighting, I'm like so tempted just to whisper, you're infected. Yeah, I got you, too. Sin got you. Because for all of us, we're all infected by sin, according to Genesis, and the worst part is, and you don't know how deep, you are affected. Because if you knew how deep it was, you would do something different with your life and how to respond to it. There's a psychological framework that I was introduced to that was really helpful about understanding yourself. It's called the Jahari window. Um, and it's pretty much this idea of uh, how much do you know about yourself and how much do other people know about you? And you can look at it in, to, in different uh, windows of how to view life. And so, this is the way it works. There are things that you know about yourself, and there are things you don't know about yourself, and there are also things that others know about you, and things that others don't know about you. So, the things that you know about yourself, and the things that other people know about you, that's pretty much our public persona, this is what they call your open window. The part of you that you know, that others pe- other people know, and most of us operate most of our life of the day in this window. The open window. You know this, I know this, yeah, this is me. And you know, when you operate life through that window, you're like, yeah, you know, I have good things, I have some quirks, I might need to improve a little bit, but yeah, you know, I just need the life hacks, I need to get better habits and read certain books, and I'll be good, and that's how we view things. But there are some things that you don't know about yourself that other people do, like they see it. Like, hey, when you are resting your face, you don't look very nice. Or hey, you think you're funny, but you're not. That's our uh, blind spots. Those are the blind spots, and we all have it. And I think if you get old enough, you realize, yeah, I have blind spots, so thank God for friends, thank goodness for community, thank goodness for a spouse, they can notice it and tell you the things that are kind of off, they need to grow in. But there's a third one, though, where there are things that you know about yourself, but other people do not. This is your hidden self. This is a part of you that you hide because it's filled with too much shame, there's a lot of guilt. It's things that you have done, that you feel ashamed of. It's the things that have been done to you, that you feel ashamed of. and you don't know what to do with this, but you desperately want to hide it from people. And all of us have that. We are all hiding this from somebody. There's a hidden part of ourselves. And the fourth window, though, though, there's one more. It's a part of us that we don't know about ourselves. And other people don't know either. This is called the unknown. Why do you get triggered the way you do? Why do you respond so angrily at your spouse when she does this? Why can't you trust people the way other people trust people? We don't know. Because there's so much trauma. There's so much suffering that you went through that you might have blacked out. That you might have just kind of not want to think about. And you don't even know what's going on. There's a lot of issues that we have. And here's the thing. A lot of us, we are operating from the first two windows only. You think you are, this is you. Yeah, this is me, or I have some blind spots. And I just, yeah, just tell me what I need to do, and that's what I, I got to do. And you're not too bad when you operate life that way. You can manage it. But what do you do with the bottom two? The shame, the guilt, the triggers, the unhealthy responses, or hurtful actions. What do we do about that? When you're aware of that stuff, it's not so easy. It's not so easy to be like, yeah, I got this thing under control. I'm good. Some of you know I have a fish tank, and I hate the fish tank because it takes so much work to maintain it. I thought you just need a filter, and it stays clean. But I realized, you know, all the waste that the filter collects, that's only the part of it. There's all this waste in the rocks that you have to deal with. See what has to happen? I have to come into the fish tank and vacuum these rocks every few weeks. This is the most annoying thing in the world. But if I don't do that, it's gonna to become toxic and it's gonna kill all the fish. This is the same thing with us. There are sins in your lives that you think, yeah, the filters work. But there are some things that are really deep inside of your heart that unless God comes and does a it work, it's gonna kill you. It's the bottom stuff, the bottom windows there. That destroys your relationships. It's not the top stuff. Yeah, those are quirks. Those are just little things you have to improve on. It's that bottom stuff of shame and guilt and dysfunction. That's the part that wrecks things for you. And what Genesis argues is that, and you can't manage that part alone. Notice Joseph, Jacob, and his brothers, they had deep sin issues. Became toxic. And it was destroying themselves. It was destroying everybody. And it only changes when God comes and enters into their lives You cannot manage your sin issues by yourself. You need God. He needs to come. Are you aware of this? Are you aware of those windows in your heart? Because if you're aware of those bottom windows, you know that there's a lot of work you gotta do, and you can't do it by yourself. You need God. But what does it look like for God to come in? What does it look like for God to do a work in you? And that leads to the second point, the hidden purpose of God. When you look at the life of Joseph, you see that God, when he comes into your life, He doesn't offer you a solution going, well, you got to do this, this, this. He doesn't do that. Instead, God takes you on a journey. God takes you on a journey, and you don't know where it's leading. It has a hidden purpose. But when we look at the story of Joseph, there are four things we notice that gives us a hint of what this journey could look like. Let's look at what Joseph went through. And here are the four things that we're going to notice in the Joseph story. There are dreams, there are coincidences, there are suffering, there's silence. First, the dreams. Notice the dreams in the story of Joseph. The story of Joseph is driven forward by these dreams. This isn't the only time he's going to have a dream, but those are the main catalysts. And Genesis later tells us that the Lord brought these dreams to Joseph. And the reason why there's a dream is because a famine is coming. There's going to be a famine where all the food is gone, everyone's going to die unless something happens. And that's where God has a plan for this. And so he gives Joseph that dream that we just read about, just foretelling that, you know, Joseph is going to rise and he's going to feed the people. And there's a second dream about the stars, which we'll talk about later. But there's a vision that God has for Joseph's family, and God's gonna bring this vision to life somehow. How? And that leads to the second thing coincidences. Even though the dreams are where the story starts, notice most of Genesis 37's all these kind of mundane details that kind of happen, these interesting coincidences. Like verse 13, Jacob just happens to tell Joseph, hey, go check on your brothers. And his brothers just happen to be pastoring over in Shechem. Shechem, by the way, from this uh, location, it's about a five-day journey. So Joseph was traveling for five days trying to find his brothers. We didn't have this in our program, but in verse 15 to 17, Joseph gets lost at one point, and it's on the screen, but this is what it says. A man found Joseph wandering the fields looking for his brother, and the man asked him, What are you seeking? And he says, I am seeking my brothers. And the man said, oh, they've gone away, for I heard them say, let's go to Dothan. And then Joseph goes to Dothan, and they put him in the pit. And then there happened to be this caravan of Ishmaelites coming, going to Egypt. And they're like, hey, let's sell them to there. And when you look at the story, you're like, whoa, like, what in the world? So if Jacob never sent Joseph to check on his brothers, none of this would have happened. Or if that man, when he, if Joseph was Joseph wandering around, if he never met that man, who go, oh, I overheard your brothers, they, they're going somewhere else. This story would have never happened. Or if that caravan of the Ishmaelites never came going to Egypt, this would have never happened. And if this never happened, you know what would happen? Everybody would have died. The famine would have come, they all would have been killed. You see, Joseph, he had to go to Egypt. He needed to be in the right place in order to save everybody while he was in Egypt. And so, even though these seem like random coincidences, you cannot help but wonder hmm, it seems like more is going on here. Thirdly, notice the suffering. Notice what happened for Joseph in order for him to get to Egypt. It wasn't an easy trip, right? He was betrayed by his brothers. They stripped his coat off. They actually say, commentators say they stripped him naked. So when they took his coat off, he's just completely naked, thrown into the pit. And he was left to die. Later on, we're told in chapter 42, when Joseph was in the pit, it wasn't like he was just lying there quiet. The brothers heard him screaming the entire time. His, Joseph was screaming, get, get me out of here. Please, Like, I, I, like let, me, let me out. Screaming, 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 but the brothers, when they did take him out, instead of helping him, they sold him as a slave, and he went to Egypt. Notice the suffering. And lastly, notice not just the suffering Joseph goes through, but notice the silence. Notice that throughout Genesis, God is always speaking to Abraham, speaking to Isaac, speaking to Jacob, but chapter 37, God's not mentioned at all. You can't find his name there. In fact, this last picture, the last section of Genesis, God's mentioned the least in the entire book of Genesis. He's barely mentioned. It's really strange. Even though, even Joseph's dreams, God's not speaking to him. they are just these random dreams that are happening. And so what goes on is God, like, all this stuff is happening, and yet he's so silent. But we know there's a purpose. We know something's driving this. And we know God is actively working, even if you don't really hear him. And if this is how God journeyed with Joseph, don't be surprised if this is how God journeys with you. God has a purpose for your life. We talked about this in our scripture series. The purpose you have is God wants to form you, become the human being you were meant to be, to love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and to love one another. But the way that's going to happen is oftentimes it's going to feel like a journey, filled with what seems like coincidences that are random, suffering, and especially God's silence. There's a lot of silence that's there. But in the midst of the suffering, in the midst of the silence, in the midst of these random coincidences, we often are going to find out that's how God's hidden purposes comes to light. A lot of you know how I got together with my wife. You heard that story a couple times, post-grad. She went to China and so forth. But a lot of you don't know the first time I met my wife and how I met her. It all begins not in post-grad life, but in high school. Because in high school, I got into the greatest university in the West Coast, University of Irvine, UCI. No one's laughing, but UC Irvine. And uh, when I got in there, my my friend from high school, he also got in, and we planned to room together. And I remember right before I filled out the, the dormitory form, saying I'm gonna room with this person, I got a random text message from this girl, who I kind of knew, and she said, hey, I heard you got to UC Irvine. I know a friend in L.A., this guy who I think you guys would, like, get along with. Would you want to room with him? And when she texted me, that, I was like, you know, if I room with my high school friend, I might be stuck in that high school bubble and I might not meet new people. So I should probably room with this new guy. So I told my high school friend, hey, I'm not going to room with you. I'm room with this guy. So messed up. <laughs> I am sorry, Derek, <laughs> whoever you are. I, I jacked him. And I roomed with this guy from L.A. And what made it worse was we didn't really get along that well. It wasn't, like, bad. But I was like, ah, what's not that compatible. But the one thing I remember about him is um, he had a friend who would always visit because they knew each other in high school, this girl. And she'd come to our dorm. And they always hung out. It wasn't my wife. It was this other girl. And and she would always visit. And she was a Christian. I wasn't a Christian at the time. So I think she came and she was mainly, like, evangelizing to me. But, you know, whatever. Like, that was, like, the nature of the relationship. And that went on throughout college. But in my senior year... I became a Christian, and I had no idea what to do. Like, hey, I'm a Christian, I'm following Jesus, but what do I do? And that girl, who my freshman roommate was friends with, she said, oh, you should come to my church. So I went to her church, and that's when I met Lena, my wife, for the first time. And she happened to be friends, that girl happened to be friends with my wife Lena at the time, and we connected, and now here we are, married with three kids. Now, today, I am pretty convinced that one of God's purposes for my life was to meet my wife, Lena, and to marry her. And I know that's the purpose of my life because I'm married to her. So, probably was. And I look back at that. I'm like, you know what's kind of crazy about that story? If I never met that girl, that mutual friend that we both knew, I would have never have met my wife, Lena. None of our kids would exist. Oh, that's crazy. But I think back even more. I'm like, wait a minute. If I never met that guy from L.A., The friend that was connected, if I never met him and roomed with him, I would have never met that girl. That's crazy. What's even crazier is, oh, my gosh, if I never jacked my high school friend, I would have never roomed with that guy. Thank goodness I jacked him because, you know, something happened. And I think, oh, my gosh, if I never got that text message, that random text message, if I never replied to it, Judah would not be born, my son. I would not have three kids. Everything seems so, like, random And yet I can't help but see, wow, every single detail, hmm, it's kind of leading to something. And again, it's easy for me to see this now because, you know, I'm married to my wife now. Years have passed so I can kind of look and, you know, connect the dots if there was a purpose that was there. But especially what makes it easy to see is that, and there wasn't much hardships in that. It seemed like this, like, you know, pretty easy straight line for me. But I know that's not always the case for you guys, for a lot of us. What happens if, oh, yeah, I had this happen, and I met her, and, you know, we love each other, and we're going to get married, but what happens if your marriage doesn't work out? What happens if uh, you have a dead marriage or you end up being separated? Hmm. It's a little bit harder to connect the dots there. Or what happens if you want to get married, but it's been way longer than you expected? Wow, this is a long time. Hmm, how do you make sense of that? What happens if you plan to raise a family, but you can't raise a family? Or you raise a family, but something happens to your family? What's God doing there? That's when it gets hard. Because when you're in the beginning or the middle of this journey, or even a difficult part of this journey that God's bringing on, it's really hard to see the purpose of it. Because it feels like right now it makes no sense. But Genesis tells us that the God, again, he's, it's a journey. It's a journey where parts start to feel bizarre, where you, if you stayed in chapter 37 of, of the Joseph story, it's just a weird, discouraging story. But you have to remember, there's chapters 38 all the way to 50. It keeps going. And for a lot of us here, that's the struggle we face. I told you guys already that I know a lot of you love Korean dramas. I do not like Korean dramas at all. But my wife does. And I remember one time, she wanted me to watch this Korean drama called Crash Landing on You. And I remember I, I sat down and watched with her the opening scene, opening episode. Ridiculous. Oh, my goodness. If you guys haven't seen it, you know what the opening scene is? is a woman in a plane. Some type of tornado hits the plane and she lands and cr- crash lands in North Korea. It's like the, the most ridiculous CGI I've ever seen. I remember I saw it. I was just like laughing. going, oh, This is why I don't watch it. And I was making fun of it. My wife said, just stop watching it. So I stopped watching it. And later on my wife, she kept watching it though, and she kept talking about it. And later on, everyone says it's like the greatest drama that's out there. And I realized like, oh, like, who who was right? Who was wrong? Me and my wife. And I realized, you know, I thought it was so ridiculous because I only saw one episode. In fact, I saw the first 20 minutes of the episode. There's 15 episodes. My wife saw it all. Yeah, it was ridiculous the first one, but some type of great story apparently came out of that fifteen episodes. And in a similar way, your journey sometimes feels a little ridiculous. Feels chaotic, it's like what is going on? And that's because you're in the middle of the episode. You're in the middle of the journey. Of course it's gonna feel chaotic. Of course it's gonna feel hard. Of course it's gonna feel even sometimes like suffering. And worst of all, God feels silent. God feels silent. But do not confuse his silence for absence. Genesis tells us God is very much in the works. He is very much present. He has a hidden purpose. And he's leading you somewhere. And we're gonna see that he's present with you in this journey. So in every situation in life, one thing to take away is know that God is working for you, but do not presume you know how he's working. You have to keep that intention. Joseph knew God was going to bring him somewhere, but he had no idea it was going to lead to this journey to Egypt. In a similar way, you know Romans 8.28 is true for those in Christ. God's going to use all things for his good purpose, and and he's going to use it for his glory. But you have no idea how that's going to work out. And if you don't have that, if you try to go, no, this is how God's going to do it. When it's not working out that way, you're going to abandon God. Because you just feel like this is the way God's supposed to do it. But Genesis teaches us that you have no idea. Sometimes God is very much going to lead you to what feels like chaos, hardships, silence. But there's a hidden purpose that's there. Now how can we know this for sure? Especially when life gets hard, that leads to the last point. The unique pattern of grace. You know, as we continue the Joseph story for the next few weeks... We're going to see that Joseph, man, this is just the beginning. He gets wrecked. He gets wrecked over and over again. I mean, Joseph, when you think back to his life, he, is, he was his father's beloved son with the, with the coat. Then he gets betrayed by his brothers in chapter 37. Then he gets sold off and is enslaved. Next chapter, we're going to see that he gets uh, falsely accused and he's imprisoned, and now he's a prisoner. And this is all for 20 years. He's just stuck for 20 years in this cycle. Sometimes when you read the story of Joseph, you can't help but think, did it have to be this way? Like, why could not I mean, God appeared in dreams, right? Why couldn't he just go up to Joseph in a dream going, hey, you need to go to Egypt right now because there's a famine coming. Or why didn't God appear to, like, the brothers and to Jacob and be like, hey, guys, this is, you know, stop hating each other. This is what's going on. Like, why did God do it this way? And one way to answer that is that Joseph, he needed to be lost first so that God could use him later to save his brothers, Joseph had to be lost. He had to go through this journey. Because when we read this story in chapters 30 to 50, you're going to see that Joseph goes to Egypt. He rises to power in Egypt. A famine comes, and he saves everybody. And all of a sudden, his brothers come, the brothers who betrayed him. Can you imagine if Joseph, from chapter 37, met those brothers who betrayed him? narcissistic, child celebrity Joseph. Oh, man, he would have smashed those brothers. He'd be like every other emperor that we know. Revenge, justice. And yet, what we're going to see is Joseph does not use his power to destroy his brothers who betrayed him. Instead, he forgives them, and he saves them. That's what Joseph does. And the reason why is because Joseph, in this, in this 20-year journey, he journeyed with God, learned of God's goodness, and it humbled him. It humbles him of his ego, his ego of the path that he was beginning, and now he's he's ready to be used by God. This is the way God's unique pattern of grace works in the lives of his people. That's how it worked in the life of Joseph, and you can't help but think, man, this sounds so familiar, because doesn't this pattern remind you of someone else? Someone who was beloved by their father, betrayed by their brothers, abandoned to die, cried out, but nobody answered to him. The story of Joseph points to the story of Jesus. Jesus had a purpose, a mission. He went through different seemingly coincidences in this earthly life. He suffered, and he experienced the silence of God. He fell into a far deeper pit than Joseph ever did, and he was stripped not of his father's coat, but of his father's love at the cross. And it wasn't just to save his family, but he did it to save the world. That pattern of grace we see in the life of Joseph, it's the same pattern you see in the life of Jesus, but there's just one big difference. Joseph needed to suffer to deal with his own sins. Why did Jesus need to suffer? The sinless one. To deal with our sins. It was for us. The gospel tells us that God deals with our problem of sin not by making you suffer, not by putting you in exile so that you learn your lesson, but the gospel says that Jesus was exiled for us. At the cross, the guilt, the shame, the offenses, the punishment, all that bottom window stuff that we're talking about, that you can't really do much to fix yourself there. Instead, it was placed upon Jesus, the condemnation we deserve. And Jesus, rather than using his position to condemn us, saying, that's right, instead, Jesus, he forgives us. And like Joseph, he saves us. And when you place your faith in Christ, his forgiveness applies to you, and he brings you on a journey now to be like him. When you place your faith in Christ, what happens is now you're on this new journey where you're going to face some weird moments, some chaos, some silence moments, some suffering. But now you have the assurance when you're on this journey that God is not bringing you on this journey to destroy you, but to really grow you, to form you, to be like Christ. I know some of you, you're going through some stuff right now. All of us are, this is first window, all of us. We're all acting like first window people here, and that's fine, that's normal. But there's some like, deep stuff that some of you guys are going through, and it feels random, hard, and again, God is so silent. But I hope this series, you can have faith to see that if you're experiencing that, that's actually pretty normal for God's people. In fact, this is how God's grace works there's a pattern to His grace. We see it in the life of Joseph, we see it in the life of Jesus, we're going to see it in the life of all those who are in Jesus. Therefore, have faith when you see this pattern in your life. Chaos, hardships, silence. But just know God is leading you through that. He's leading you to where you need to be. So to conclude, I want to just emphasize, you know, our church, we believe, let's not just learn things we want to practice things. Let's you know, practice fasting. Practice reading scripture. Let's get into our bodies, the idea of like how we can follow Jesus. So in light of what we are hearing today, in light of what we are going to hear, what is our practice? What should we do? And this is going to be where it's a little bit different. Oftentimes we have been telling you this is what you should do in response to what we hear. But in this series, what we want to do is we want to invite you to actually, hey, don't worry about doing something. Notice what God is doing. What is God doing in your life? Look at your life. What is taking place? College students, what is going on in the midst of the roommate drama, the finals, the busyness? What is God doing in the midst of all that? What is God showing you post-grad about your post-grad wandering and you feel so lost? Like, What is God doing? Is he there? What is his purposes? What is God doing, married couples, in your highs, and your lows, in your journey? Do you notice what God is doing? Not saying we can figure it out all right away. But take a moment to pause and notice what does God do in your life, and especially remember that those in Christ, God is with you. He is with you in this journey. His silence does not mean his absence. And so as I invite the praise team up, can I invite us as a church to take a moment to pause and reflect upon what is going on in your life that just stands out, that's either a unique burden, a unique hardship, or a unique season, And usually it's the first visceral response that comes to your mind. It might be, man, yeah, you know, my family or my work or, man, I'm just going through this dry spell and I don't know why. Whatever comes up in your mind, if we could take a moment to pause, just bring it to the Lord. Just sit in silence, sit in the presence with that problem with the Lord. Or even just asking the Lord what's happening. Asking him, talking to him, dialoguing with him. Praying about it. But we want to take a moment to pause, to be still. And truly really examine ourselves and see what God is doing and noticing what God is doing in our lives, then I'll pray for us all together as a church. But let's first pause for a moment to ourselves and we'll pray to him at this time.